Peace be with you. My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here at Southern Heights, and today we are concluding our sermon series through Paul's letter to the Galatians. The Apostle Paul wrote his letter to the Galatians in order to defend and clarify the Christian gospel that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Now, chapter 6, which we're covering all of today, is going to present plenty of opportunities for us to spin off into tangents. Um, So, rather than preaching for the next seven hours, rather than cherry-picking a few verses, I'm going to zoom out and try to capture the big picture of what Paul is trying to say here, what Paul is actually describing here. Um, By the time we come to chapters 5 and 6, we tend to suppose that the theology portion of Paul's letter is finished. Now Paul is just giving some basic guidelines on how to behave, some suggestions really. But this is not an appendage to Paul's letter. Paul's ethical instructions are tied to a particular social situation, a social situation created by the gospel itself. Jews and Gentiles in fellowship. Unity despite diversity, or in other words, new creation in practice. Paul is describing life within the transnational family of Abraham. Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, they're all one in Christ Jesus. And so Paul is saying, okay, ladies and gentlemen, rich and poor, black and white, conservatives and liberals, in light of the fact that we are all sons of Abraham by faith, How can we make this thing work? In chapter 5, Paul answered an inevitable question. If the Gentile Christians are not to be expected to convert to Judaism and follow all the laws incumbent upon Israel, what are the Gentile Christians expected and obligated to do? And Paul answers this question by quoting Leviticus 19.18, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He continues here in chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Paul says, restore one another from sin, bear one another's burdens, esteem one another, and share with one another. But I want to think about this phrase, you who are spiritual. In the early 5th century, there was a man named Simeon who lived in the desert as a hermit. He entered a Christian monastery as a 15-year-old, and he quickly developed a reputation for being too stern and too severe for any type of social or communal life. Not a popular guy. Um, At first, he shut himself in a small hut for three years, and he he would fast from food and drink for up to 40 days. And he would stand upright until his legs gave out, which is, as we all know, an obvious demonstration of piety. That was a joke. It's not. All right. Sleepy crowd today. Um, 
After moving out of his hut, he voluntarily imprisoned himself in a cave. Simeon wanted to commune with God in solitude, free from worldly distractions. But, but people kept coming out to visit him in the desert, which was annoying. And so he had to come up with a new solution. He constructed an open-air pillar about 10 feet tall and a few feet in diameter, and he lived there for years and years. This allowed him to get all of his communion done without interruption. Through the years, Simeon lived on a series of pillars, each taller than the last. And the pillar upon which he died was between 50 and 65 feet high. In the end, he spent 36 years living on pillars in the desert. And all of this was done in the name of being spiritual. Simeon was convinced that the desert was more spiritual than the city. He was convinced that in order to be spiritual, to truly know God, he had to be alone. Interestingly, irreligious people are especially interested in spirituality these days. Many people don't like religion, but they're still looking for a private spirituality. According to one sociologist, growing numbers of Americans piece together their faith like a patchwork quilt. Spirituality has become a vastly complex quest in which each person seeks in his or her own way. Now, Christians are sometimes guilty of this as well. Some of us feel most spiritual through private acts of devotion, whether prayer or Bible study or fasting. Some of us feel most spiritual when we're on retreat in the wilderness. Some of us feel most spiritual here in the context of corporate worship. Some of us feel most spiritual when we get to, get to see the Holy Spirit do something really miraculous. And those are all good things. But according to Galatians chapter 6, true spirituality is not an individualistic quest for self-fulfillment. True spirituality is not whatever works for you. The fruit of the Spirit is not produced for your private consumption. And that's good news. It means you don't have to live on a pillar in the desert. The life of the Spirit flourishes for the sake of others and within the context of others. According to Christianity, the spiritual life is meant to be shared. Now, sometimes we should seek isolation. Sometimes retreating into the wilderness to pray is precisely the right thing to do. More often than not, Bible study is beneficial. But we don't isolate for the sake of isolation. We seek solitude in order to re-enter the community revived. See, the church is meant to function like a team, every member caring for every member. You simply cannot fulfill the law of Christ here at Sojourn without finding your way into a neighborhood parish. We have structured our church that way on purpose. And to go one step further with that, I'd encourage you to become a covenant member. Um, if not here at Sojourn, become a member somewhere. Plant yourself somewhere so that you can grow and commit your life to others. Fulfilling the law of Christ means giving yourself in love and humility to the service of others. And yet, 
even as we accept responsibility for others, we also must accept responsibility for ourselves. This is a paradox of true community. Everyone must take responsibility for everyone, including themselves. Or in other words, everyone takes care and nobody takes advantage. I'm responsible for you, and you are responsible for you. You are responsible for me, and I am responsible for me. In this type of community, neither the giver of help nor the recipient of help is exalted. Christ is exalted. Christ gives to the giver for the benefit of the recipient. So there's nothing to boast about. A generous rich man is not holier than a needy poor man. Christ serves the poor man through the rich man, and Christ serves the rich man through the poor man. The poor man praises God for the provision, and the rich man praises God that his worship is no longer choked out by excess. He gets to be generous like Jesus. Paul is describing the ideal society, a Trinitarian society where the one and the many are perfectly integrated. We are totally united, but we are still individual persons. And so Paul says, bear one another's burdens and carry your own load. Everybody. Christian, what you do and say and purchase matters to the rest of us. This is God's covenant family, and we no longer get to make decisions in a vacuum. Like in every family, what one member does and says and purchases matters to everyone else in the family. And so according to verses 1 through 6, truly spiritual people restore one another from sin, bear one another's burdens, esteem one another, and share with one another. Once again, Paul will not allow his letter to the Galatians to be interpreted as freedom from all obligation to our Heavenly Father and His household of faith. Verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Do good to everyone. Do good to everyone. God is not mocked. You will reap what you sow. Paul doesn't mince words here. He's not saying... He's not making suggestions. He's not saying, wouldn't it be great if the people of God were unified? Wouldn't it be great if the people of God functioned like a family? Wouldn't it be great if the people of God actually served one another? He's saying, be unified. Be a family. Serve one another. The gospel is not this. Jesus succeeds wherever we fail, so it doesn't really matter what we do. It's not just a matter of having the right set of answers to St. Peter's pop quiz at the pearly gates. 
The gospel is a royal pronouncement that King Jesus, who was crucified and resurrected for our sins, has taken his throne as the true and rightful king of this world, and how you live within his kingdom matters. He cares. And so we are forgiven, but we are also accountable. We reap what we sow. Actions have consequences. In the end, we are accountable to God, responsible to God for the things, for the things that we do in this life. John Stott writes, Every time we allow our mind to harbor a grudge, nurse a grievance, entertain an impure fantasy, or wallow in self-pity, we are sowing to the flesh. Every time we linger in bad company whose insidious influence we, we know we cannot resist, every time we lie in bed when we ought to be up and praying, every time we read pornographic literature, every time we take a risk which strains our self-control, we are sowing, sowing, sowing to the flesh. Some Christians sow to the flesh every day and wonder why they do not reap holiness. Holiness is a harvest. Whether we reap it or not depends almost entirely on what and where we sow. In order to reap the fruit of the Spirit, in order to see the kingdom come in our midst, we must all tend to the hard soil of our hearts. We must help one another dig up the weeds and till the soil and fend off everything that threatens the crop. We must help one another to sow seeds of prayer and devotion and unity and love. 1 Corinthians 3.9 tells us that we are God's field. God's field. Fruitful fields require faithful farmers. Some alliteration for you. Fruitful fields require faithful farmers. If we really want to see a harvest of holiness here in Houston, we must do these things. If we do not do these things, we are like farmers who refuse to work the land and then wonder why there's no harvest. We must cultivate God's field and sow to the Spirit. What does it look like to sow to the Spirit? Well, on a personal level, it looks like daily repentance. It looks like reading and memorizing and praying the Psalms. It looks like learning to discern the moments and situations when temptation tends to strike. It means putting the necessary software on your computer. It looks like practicing gratitude, praying prayers of thanksgiving every day. It looks like giving sacrificially of your time and finances. It looks like pursuing church membership and spiritual oversight. It looks like going to sleep or reading or praying instead of watching another episode. It looks like leaning into community even when you're tired and even when it's hard. It looks like disciplining yourself to be teachable. On a communal level, it looks like practicing confession and forgiveness with one another. It looks like gently caring for someone in a crisis. It looks like pursuing unity. It looks like listening to others even when you don't like what you're hearing. 
It looks like obeying verses 1 through 6, the law of Christ. It looks like praying for your pastors and your parish leaders. It looks like praying whenever prompted by the Holy Spirit. It looks like serving the poor. In all these things, we are sowing to the Spirit. Like Simeon, uh, we're living in a dry and thirsty land with no water, and we are giving away our every moment for the glory of God. To be fair to him, that's what he was doing. We're not just sowing 15 minutes of devotion every morning. We're sowing every thought, every deed, every breath. But unlike Simeon, We're after more than just private spirituality. We're trusting the Lord to pour out His Spirit on our church, turning the dry and thirsty land into a fruitful field. And fruitful fields require faithful farmers. Paul concludes his letter to the Galatians with a a dense summary of everything that he's covered. He says this, It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. When we think of persecution in the early church, we we usually think of the Roman government. Uh, But some of the most severe persecution, at least early on, actually came from the Jewish people. That said, avoiding Jewish persecution was easy. All the Gentile Christians had to do was become Jewish. The Jews were happy to have the converts provided they got circumcised and placed themselves under the law of Moses. And that was, that was the more socially acceptable gospel. Believe in Jesus for salvation, but after that, you need to take upon yourself all the obligations of Jewish life. And this is what Paul means by making a good showing in the flesh. The false teachers were requiring circumcision in order to avoid persecution. But for those who are in Christ, for those who are in Christ, that's us, for those who are in Christ, circumcision can do nothing to improve our standing before God. There is nothing better than simply, merely being in Christ. There's no higher calling than that. There's no upper echelon of God's covenant people. You're in him or you're not, and if you're in him, it is good. And so, had Paul taught the Gentiles to follow through with circumcision, he could have earned favor with the other Jews. He wouldn't have been tossed out of the synagogues. He would have escaped persecution. But instead of shrinking back, Paul went one giant step further. He not only refused to teach circumcision of the flesh, he emphatically did teach crucifixion of the flesh. 
As Paul wrote in chapter 2, we are crucified with Christ. We are not only free from the tyranny of our flesh, in Christ we are able to crucify our flesh and live lives of service for the benefit of our neighbors, especially our neighbors here within the household of God. See, Paul's gospel, the one true gospel, not only provides a way to make people right with God, it also enables them to live a life that distinguishes them from the world. And from Genesis on, God wanted the nation of Israel to be holy and distinct from the other nations of the world. And now, even with the inclusion of the nations into this new and broader and more beautiful Israel, God still wants us to be holy and distinct. If we, God's field, produce the fruit of the Spirit, which Dodds covered last week, if we, God's field, produce the fruit of the Spirit, we will be a distinct and holy community. And a holy community in this sense is by its very nature a missional community. In verse 17, Paul, who, who by the way was a circumcised Jew, Paul makes reference to the only bodily marks that actually mattered to him. He says, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The marks of Jesus. Paul is pouring himself out for others, for the gospel, for the glory of God, and his body is beginning to show the wear and tear that self-sacrifice can produce. He bears on his body the marks of Jesus. And the marks of Jesus are marks that extend God's welcome to everyone. The marks of Jesus are marks that come at great cost, great personal cost, but ultimately bring peace and unity to the people of God. Paul has been bitten and devoured. Paul has been abandoned by friends. Paul has been beaten and cursed, and through it all, Paul has crucified his own passions and desires, his flesh. These are the marks of Jesus. Jesus bore these marks for you. Paul bore these marks for you. You bear these marks for one another. Crucify the flesh, kill it, and sow to the Spirit. False teachers were attempting to make a good showing in the flesh. They wanted to look good. They were looking out for themselves, which only produced discord. But Paul's body was beaten and bruised and broken for boasting in the cross of Christ. He was not concerned with appearances. He was concerned for the Galatians and the glory of God. He says, don't, don't listen to these false teachers in their fancy suits and pearly white teeth and mansions in river oaks. Look at what I've suffered for you and know that I love you. Don't, don't go with them. Paul writes this in Colossians chapter 1. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Now that sounds strange at first. It sounds like Paul is saying there's something lacking in the work of Christ, but that's not what he's saying. 
The suffering and affliction and self-sacrifice of Christ inaugurated the church. But suffering, affliction, and self-sacrifice were still in store for the building up of the church. And suffering and affliction and self-sacrifice are still in store if we want to see the church built up in Houston. Thankfully, the Lord gives us grace to endure this. Verse 18. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. So, in the kingdom of God, it was never really a matter of circumcision. It was always a matter of faith and love and brotherly affection. And wherever the spirit of God is bearing his fruit, there is the kingdom of God. So we should pray, Holy, Holy Spirit, bring the kingdom to us. This is the world we all want. The things that we think we want are mere shadows. Would you show us the real thing? May the city of Houston peer in and see a church marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Let's walk in love toward others within this household of faith our brothers and our sisters. Let's pray often for one another. Let's grumble less. As we have opportunity, let's be together. Let those of us who by God's providence have much administer to the necessities of the poor. Let's bear one another's burdens, sympathizing with the afflicted. Let's advise, caution, encourage, and restore one another in love. Let's watch out for one another like good siblings. Let's not give offense. Let's not take offense. Let's bear the marks of Christ and fulfill the law of Christ through service to one another and our neighbors. God forbid we read Paul's letter to the Galatians and leave this place divided. We will have missed the point completely. Rather, let's be truly spiritual people by crucifying our sins and asking the Holy Spirit to bear his new creation fruit in our midst. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this word, this letter to the Galatians. Um, I thank you for using the Apostle Paul to, to write it. I pray that by your providence it has been preserved for 2,000 years so that we can have it here beneath our seats and on our nightstands and on the screen behind me. Thank you. Thank you for the blessing of this. God, I pray that you would make us faithful farmers in your field. Um, help us to sow to the Spirit. Uh, each one of us, Help us to sow to the Spirit. And I pray that in our midst you would bear the fruit of the Spirit um, so that we can enjoy that, so that the city of Houston can peer in and see that you are good. In Jesus' name, amen.